Good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online services. We are extremely excited to offer an additional way for you to enjoy our services, to experience our Sunday morning services. Like Larry said, we'll be meeting in the parking lot February 7th. February 7th, so make sure uh, you're there. We're going to be there at 11 o'clock. We are looking forward to that opportunity. Now today we are closing out John chapter 8. We're closing out John chapter 8. What we've seen so far in the gospel of John, specifically in chapter 8, is Jesus makes some pretty um, significant and serious claims about himself. Jesus said that he is the son of God. Jesus said that he is uh, our rescuer from death. Jesus also said that he is our liberator from the power of sin. Now, what we'll see as we close out John chapter 8 is all of these strong claims and declarations force us to a decision. We have to do something with these claims. They force us to make a decision. We have to decide for ourselves who is Jesus. Who do we believe him to be? Are all these claims true or are they false? Who is Jesus to us? Now, before we close that out, what I want to do is this, to kind of get our mind thinking in that direction of really grasping who Jesus is, I want to kind of get the mental energy working a little bit. So I want to play a little game with you, a word association game. And here's what I mean. What I would love for you to do is I'd love for you to to think of a description. I'm going to say a name, and I want the first description that comes to your mind, I want you to capture it. So so I'll say a name, and the first kind of title or adjective or description that comes to your name uh, or comes to your mind, you you just you just hold on to it, capture it, or you could even, if you want to, you could say it out loud. All right, let me give an example. So if I were to say something like a, a Batman, maybe the thing that comes to your mind is superhero, right? That superhero describes Batman. All right, so let's try the first one on. How about this? Here's the name: Darth Vader. Darth Vader. What was the first thing that came to your mind? Maybe the first thing that came to your mind was, was villain, right? Or, or, or bad guy. Or maybe you're that sophisticated, very intelligent Star Wars fan, and you said something like hero. Because in Return of the Jedi, he is actually the hero. He's the one who defeats the emperor. I know. I'm a nerd. I'm a Star Wars nerd. Okay, let's move on. Let's do another one. Okay, what about um, Abraham... Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe president or, or leader, something like that, right? Let's do the last one. Jesus. Jesus. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? The first description that comes to your mind? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you may think of one of those titles that Jesus gave himself or one of those descriptions that Jesus has already made in John chapter Eight, maybe you thought son of God or rescuer or, or liberator or even savior. Or maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're watching these services because you're, you're just curious and you, you want to kind of answer life's big questions and you've been kind of coming to church and you've been viewing us online and so you're starting to kind of work through these questions. And, and I bet for you, uh, the descriptions that came to your mind were probably very positive. Maybe something like teacher or a role model, or um, moral example, something like that. I think Jesus has a very high popularity rating in our nation. If we say his name, probably some good titles are going to come out. Now, this is not what happens in John chapter 8. 
As we include John chapter 8, the title and description that's given to Jesus by his hearers is something that none of us thought of. I guarantee you nobody thought of this title as I said that name, Jesus. The title that's given is Demon. Demon. I bet nobody thought of Demon. Now here's the more shocking thing. If that title's not shocking enough, the more shocking thing is this. Their response actually makes sense. I actually understand their response. I don't agree with it, but I understand that. I think they're actually being honest to their understanding. See, and this is what Jesus forces us to do. When we really understand the truthfulness of his claims, we see with clear vision what he is saying about himself. We're really only left with kind of two very opposing options. See, if we hold on to Jesus' claims, we find out that Jesus is either in a very high place or a very low place. Either we should adore Jesus or we should be appalled by Jesus. Let me show you this. John chapter 8. We're going to close off the chapter, but we're going to start first with verse 48. So John chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 48. Jesus is, is kind of in mid-conversation right now with his uh, Jewish opponents. And so we're going to pick up with the, kind of their response to what Jesus already said to them in John chapter 8. But before we get to reading the passage, let me give you kind of the big idea for this morning. This is the main idea of our passage today. And we like to formulate it into a big idea, something that is sticky, that will stay with you for at least a week until we give you the next big idea. So the big idea is this. Jesus is either a demon or divine. Jesus is either a demon or divine. If you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write that down. Jesus is either a demon or divine. If we truly understand what Jesus is saying about himself, if we take him for his honest claims, if we take him at what he says of himself, then we must either determine that Jesus is the Lord of the universe or... He is a lunatic who needs to get locked up. Jesus is either the ultimate deceiver or he is God. There's really no third option. Let me show you how Jesus' claims create this kind of watershed response, kind of this this contrasting response. Let's pick up. Right now we're with what the Jews are going to say to Jesus after responding to what he has declared about himself. Look at verse 40. Of John chapter 8. It says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So Jesus just said that he was the Son of God. He said he was the only rescuer from death and he is the only liberator from the power of sin. We've unpacked that over the last three weeks. In response to that, Jesus' opponents say, you, you must have a demon. You must be a demon, and you are a Samaritan. Now, why do they respond to Jesus like that? And what do they mean by these insults? Well, well Jesus has been interacting with them. He has really taken out all of their theological arguments. They have no ground to stand on. So they're kind of backed into a corner. And, and, and think about it. What do you do when you're backed into a corner, when all your arguments are now dissolved kind of before you, when they don't stand anymore, what, 
what do you do? Well, maybe you resort to name-calling, and that's exactly what these Jewish religious leaders do. They just start to call Jesus names. When in doubt, make fun of your opponent. Right? That, that's what they do. Well, the first name they call Jesus is a Samaritan. A Samaritan. And I'm not talking about Jesus' nationality. That's not what they're talking about. A Samaritan to the Jews was a, was a half-breed heretic. It, it was people who had intermingled, Jewish people who had intermingled with other peoples. And, and, and so they were genetically kind of half-breeds, if you will. They weren't pure, had pure Jewish blood. And then their theology started to morph and change. It looked somewhat Jewish, but really was a distortion of Judaism. So on the surface, you could see elements that looked very Jewish. But, but what they did to it was they turned it, they distorted it. And the Jews considered that heresy as something that was, was just a treasonous act when it comes to orthodoxy. Well, these Jewish leaders are seeing a similar pattern in Jesus. And they say, Jesus, you're... You look somewhat Jewish in what you're saying. Some of what you say kind of is resonating with the Old Testament, but, but you're, you're distorting it. You're making it different, and we can't recognize it. So this is why they call him a Samaritan. Your theology is wrong. Your claims are false. Now, how big is the distortion in their eyes? What is the disparity that they see between orthodoxy and what Jesus is teaching? What's the disparity between right teaching and what Jesus is saying? Well, the next title gives us that answer. They say, you're a Samaritan, you're a heretic, you're a, you're a false teacher, your theology is warped. Then they say, and you have a demon. Now, this is actually not the first time this accusation or insult will be uh, put against Jesus, even in this gospel. We saw it in John chapter 7. We're going to see it again later. We see it here. We actually see it in the other gospels as well. When some of the religious leaders are, are explaining how Jesus can do supernatural works, they say, well, he does it by the power of a demon, by the power of the head of demons, by, by Satan. This is how he does these things, how he has this miraculous power at his kind of uh, 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 bestowal. He can do these things, and so he must have the power of a demon. Now, just, just think about this for a moment. What greater insult could you levy against somebody being a Jew? I mean, we have a, the Jews are a highly religious people. They have a supernatural worldview. If they really wanted to just put somebody down, what better term could they find than a demon? They're saying, Jesus, you are in line, or even you are working for the bad guy of the Bible, the devil. You are in line with Satan. Now, here's the interesting thing that Jesus does. I mean, imagine if the greatest insult that anybody could ever use against you is used against you, how would you respond? Right? We get defensive. That's what we do. If somebody really finds that insult that really gets under our skin, I mean, really pushes our buttons, we usually respond with emotion. We react maybe in rage. And we throw out reason and maybe we start throwing down some insults. Maybe we start playing kind of the game of name-calling. 
That's not going to be Jesus' response. Here's what Jesus will do. And we'll see this over and over again, kind of a rhythm that's established in this passage. As as they keep talking, and, and whether they're pushing back or they're confused, Jesus will do this. He will keep pressing down on the accelerator. Just keep pushing forward. Hey, you think that's a big claim that I just made? I have another big one to make. Oh, you think that was a big claim to say about myself? I've got another one. And he just keeps adding on and adding on, saying more clearly and more clearly and with more significance who he truly is. Look at how Jesus responds to them. Not defensive, not insecure, totally in control of his emotions and with great clarity speaks to his identity. Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Jesus clears this up. Hey, I'm in line with God. I don't work for the devil. I'm not in line with the demonic. No, no, no. My job is to honor my father. That's what I do. And then Jesus shows the lack of their alliance or alignment with God. He says, hey, I'm in the right team. I'm lined up here with God the Father. You're the ones who aren't lined up, right? Look at the next thing that he says. Yet I do not seek my own glory. I'm not self-promoting. I'm not looking uh, to kind of build up my own kind of uh, prestige. He says, there is one who seeks it. There is one who seeks glory, or my glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. What is he saying there? These terms of of glory and judgment. He says, yet I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Here's the concept here. He's saying, look, I am not the one who is seeking to glorify myself. There, There is one who is seeking that I receive glory. And that one he's speaking of is also the judge. He's talking about God. God is the one who is working to glorify the Son. Do you see that contrast there? Jesus said, I'm not in line with the devil. I'm not working for the devil. In fact, God the Father is working to glorify me. He wants me to receive glory. And then he says, the one who seeks to glorify me and seeks that others would glorify me, he will be the judge. What is Jesus saying there? Right here, Jesus is putting them under kind of an indictment. He's saying we all give glory. We we all can give glory and inevitably do give glory. Every single one of us does. We have the ability to give glory. We give our honor, our respect, our devotion, our attention to something or someone. We have glory to give, praise, honor, and respect To give, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And he's saying, God the Father will judge who you give your glory to, whether it's something or someone. And if you don't give it to the Son, then you will be judged by the Father. It's a pretty serious thing for Jesus to say, and he continues on. He presses further on the accelerator, saying, God is working to glorify me. Now let me tell you what I can do. Look what Jesus says in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is the point, kind of the the climax of what Jesus is saying so far in this paragraph. He says, truly, truly, meaning, hey, pay attention, focus. I want you to really hear what I'm saying to you. 
Truly, truly, or we could take it as, listen up, listen up, this is important. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you follow my instructions, you will never see death. This is incredibly significant. I mean, the severity of this can't be diminished. I mean, these are really big words. Jesus is saying, I can safeguard you from death. Well, who can safeguard us from death besides God? Who can do this act? I mean, this would be the greatest of human achievements. To promise people that they would not see death if they followed you, that you could give to them a life that would not be destroyed by death. Now, what does Jesus mean here, though, when he says they won't experience or see death? Is Jesus talking about physical death? No, I think Jesus is talking about spiritual death. We see this later. Jesus explains this in John chapter 11. You could just turn probably just one page in your Bible. Jesus makes a distinction between a death that believers will experience, and a death that they will not experience. Now, he uses the same term, but he's thinking of two different ideas. Let me show you how he does this in John chapter 11, and we'll get great clarity as to what he means by not seeing death. This is John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now listen to this. Listen to how he uses the term death. Whoever believes in me, though he dies. So that means if you believe in me and you die, so this person experiences death, yet shall he live. He will have a life even though he dies. But then look at verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now wait a second here. How can Jesus say that those who believe, even though they die, meaning they will experience a death, will have life, and then he says that those who believe in him will never die. Again, Jesus is thinking about two different experiences of death, two types of death. Jesus was not talking about physical death in John chapter 8. In John chapter 11, Jesus clarifies the believer will experience one death, but there's another type of death that they will not experience. There's a time that, that, that a believer's heart will stop working, where their brain will stop functioning, where their soul will leave their body. They will experience physical death, but that soul that's left their body will not experience death. The Bible sometimes calls that the second death. The second death is when the soul dies. And that doesn't mean that the soul no longer exists. It means that it is separated from its creator forever. That is the experience of second death. That is soul death, if you will. But a believer, when he physically dies and his soul is separated from his body, when the soul leaves his body, it experiences the presence of God and is experiencing Life. So Jesus says, there's a life I'm going to give you now, and physical death cannot extinguish that life I give you. 
And it cannot interrupt that life I give you. In fact, that life will pass through physical death. This is what Jesus is speaking of here. You will not see death. You will not know separation from God forever. You will not be abandoned by your creator forever. You will experience communion with God, which is true, spiritual, and eternal, and everlasting life. I mean, these are pretty big claims. Jesus saying he is the giver of eternal life. Well, how are the Jews going to respond to that? Their response is one of confusion. Of confusion. They don't really understand what Jesus is saying. Look at their confusion. Verse 52. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Now they're certain of it. What do you mean you can, you can stop people from experiencing death? You have to be delusional. Your delusions must be inspired by the demonic. Clearly, you are a lunatic. We are now confirming it right before our eyes. The more you speak, the more we're sure that you are a fool. That's what they're saying. Look at their line of reasoning. The Jews said, this is verse 52, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, they have totally misunderstood Jesus. They didn't see Jesus kind of separate the idea of physical death and spiritual death. They, they, they missed that. They don't understand the idea of, no, he's not talking about when the heart stops beating and the brain stops working. He's not talking about that. He's talking about when the soul is sentenced to eternal separation from God. That's what he's talking about. And they get this confused. They think he's talking about physical death, and to them they think, wait a second, Jesus, this doesn't work. This doesn't work because we know of the great ancients of faith. We know of the prophets. We know of of Abraham. And they delivered God's word to us. They spoke about God. They taught us about God. And those men, these great teachers of God, these great voices of God to us, they died, and the people that they taught died. So how how is it that you can say that you can stop somebody from experiencing death? You, You can't be greater than Abraham, and you can't be greater than the prophets. You see their kind of line of reasoning? Their reasoning is, we've never seen this before. This has never been done before. And if we've never seen it and it's never been done, then it can never be done. Now, now we know that line of reasoning doesn't work. That's not logical. Those two points don't follow each other. Right? Easily we could say, well, what if Jesus is just doing something better than what's been done before? Now, that is true. But again, they're confused. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They don't understand the kind of death that Jesus is speaking of. They don't understand the life that he is trying to communicate. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't clarify. Jesus' response is not to clarify the difference between physical death and spiritual death. That's not what Jesus does next. Jesus rather decides to kind of, again, push the accelerator down. Make it even more clear as to his identity. He kind of just ups the ante more and more. He says, you think it's remarkable that I say this? 
That if you follow me, you won't taste death. If you think that's something, I've got even more to say about myself. All right, look what Jesus says. We're in verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does Jesus do here? Jesus says, you want kind of some witnesses? You want people to point out who I am? Let me tell you two witnesses that I know personally. That's what Jesus said. I know two people personally, and they're on my side. You think they're on your side, but they're on my side. Witness number one, God. God is my witness. Again, I don't glorify myself. Rather, it's the Father who glorifies me, and I know him. And Jesus says, and you don't know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But, but you guys are the liar. You say you know God, but you don't know God. I think what Jesus is saying here is Jesus is saying that they have never known God. They have never been right with God. They have been incredibly religious and maybe very knowledgeable of the Scriptures, but they've never had a relationship with God. It's not that their interaction with Jesus has now broken their relationship with God because they reject Jesus, now they're out. No, I think their rejection of Jesus just shows where they've been this whole time, and that is outside of a relationship with God. They've never been right with God. They've never truly known God. And it just shows itself on this new occasion now that becomes incredibly clear when God's son is right before him and they reject him. So Jesus kind of brings in more kind of credibility. He brings in more witnesses. He says, God is my witness. I can do the things I said I can do. I can assure you that you'll never see death. And then he brings in another witness. He says, Abraham. Abraham knows me. He says, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Now this is kind of odd. Abraham saw him, rejoiced that he would see him. It says in verse 56, he saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham lives, lived 2,000 years before Jesus was ever born. So how is it that Abraham could see Jesus? Could see Jesus and rejoice? That sounds a little strange. I mean, Jesus is using um, some kind of confusing language here. What does Jesus mean by this? That, that Abraham saw him and, and rejoiced. How could that be? Well, actually, we know in the first century world, first century world uh, that many rabbis actually taught that Abraham did see the future. This man who lived 2,000 years ago, who's really the, the father of the Jewish religion, if you look at the kind of the top of the, the Jewish family tree, really Abraham is, is the father of that family tree, and he's the model of faith in Judaism. 
And Abraham is believed by many rabbis in the first century world and even before that he actually saw the future, that God showed him what's called the messianic age. Now, that may sound like a really big term, but the messianic age just means the age of the Messiah. The Messiah was God's Old Testament hero. It's the hero that God promised in the Old Testament that, that, that he would bring. He would bring this hero that would finally bring his people back into right relationship with him. So in the Old Testament, they're waiting for this hero to come, this, this king to come. They're waiting for him. And it's believed that Abraham actually saw the time of this great hero. Now, it's hard to really pinpoint when that actually happened from what we have in the Old Testament. But some people believe, based on Genesis chapter 12, that this was the experience that he had. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes an agreement with Abraham. He tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. But through you, I'm going to bless the nations. So he says, I'm going to make you a nation and bless you. But through you and through your family that will grow into a nation, I will bless all the nations. Now that was kind of a a verbal promise that God gave to Abraham. And some rabbis read that and said, God actually showed Abraham that entire blessing, kind of a, a panoramic view of history. Other rabbis guess that Genesis 15 is where this kind of idea came from. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abraham falls asleep and God gives him a, a vision, a dream at night. And at night, in a dream, God speaks to Abraham and tells him things about the future. He tells him, yes, you're going to be a great nation. And, and, and your family tree, your family will grow and it will be big and it will be great, but then it will be imprisoned in Egypt. He doesn't say specifically Egypt, but he does say that they'll be enslaved. And then he says they'll be liberated from that slavery and they'll go into the promised land. Well, we know just in that vision that God has described about the next 600 years or so from when Abraham received that vision of what would happen in the future. So some rabbis said that God gave him even more than that, that he saw all the way up to the Messiah coming, all the way up to God's Old Testament hero coming. Now, we actually don't know what Jesus is referring to, but we do know that many agreed with Jesus. Many agreed that Jesus, or with Jesus, that Abraham saw something. We don't know from the Old Testament what Jesus is speaking of. We, we can only guess But we know the same expectation was in the first century world by some Jewish leaders. But what is really the point of tension here is not that Abraham saw this or that he would see the Messiah or had seen the Messiah. It's that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at the wording that Jesus uses very, very carefully. He says this. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He didn't say that you would see the day of the Messiah. No, he said you would see he saw my day. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, okay, many in the crowd think that Abraham saw this, that he saw the time that God brought about that blessing that would bless the nation." That God brought the Old Testament hero. Many believe that. And Jesus is saying, 
that's me. I am Messiah. I am the Old Testament hero. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the king in the lineage of David. I am the one that was promised way back in Genesis 12. I am the blessing to all the nations. I am the great liberator. I am the great rescuer. I am the great savior. I am the great sacrificial lamb. I am the great king. This is who I am. Again, Jesus keeps pressing down on the accelerator saying, here is who I am. I'm Messiah, and I'm the one, if you follow me, you will find eternal life, a life that cannot be interrupted or destroyed by death. Jesus just keeps pressing forward and forward and forward and forward, and their response is confusion. Again, they still don't quite get it. And what we'll see is Jesus' response is to be even more clear, to press down on the accelerator again, forcing them to really make a decision about who he is. Look at their response. Again, it's one of confusion. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Well, right here, they're misquoting Jesus. Jesus did not say that he saw Abraham. Jesus said that Abraham saw him. Now, there may not be a big difference there, but they already show that they're not holding Jesus' words very carefully. And what do they say to Jesus? It's a very simple line of reasoning. They say, Jesus, wait a second. You're not 50 years old. Jesus said this time would be around 30 years old. You're not 50 years old, and Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. So how on earth have you seen each other? How have you met each other? How do you know each other? How could this possibly be? Jesus, this doesn't work. The math does not add up. And at the height of their skepticism, they've called demon, or Jesus a demon twice already. They're convinced that he is a lunatic. They're convinced he's in line with the demonic. And the more and more Jesus says, the more confused they are, the more frustrated they get, the more irritated they get. And at the height of their skepticism, at the height of the tension, Jesus gives the most clearest declaration of his divinity, forcing them to see the radical nature of his claims. And he does it with two words. Two simple words. In English, only three letters together. Look how Jesus responds. We're going to read this slow because I want you to kind of follow this. What set up this so far is Jesus has talked about himself being seen by a man who is over 2,000 years old. Or sorry, who has died 2,000 years ago. How could this be? This is puzzling. And look what Jesus says to them. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, here he does it again. I want you to really focus. The last time he said this, he told them, Whoever follows my words will not see death. That was the point where he said, I'm the one who can give eternal life. So Jesus does this again. Truly, truly. Hey guys, focus, listen, pay attention. I say to you, Before Abraham was, 
And here are those two words, only three letters in English. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now maybe right away in your mind you think, wait, 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 Jesus, that's bad grammar. Right? You use the wrong tense of the verb there. Right? Maybe in your mind, maybe you're an English teacher or you're just a writer and, and you, you can just see yourself grabbing the red pen and saying, no, 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 that's a mistake. Right? If, if you're referring to being before something or before someone, you have to use the past tense. Uh, to give you an example, uh, I'm 10 days older than my wife. So I would say, before Lindsay was born, I was born. I would not say, I is born. That would be wrong. Or I will be born. No, that would be wrong. If I'm trying to say that I'm before Lindsay, if I'm born before Lindsay, I would use the past tense. Before Lindsay was born, I was born. So Jesus is grammatically incorrect. Isn't that odd? It's because Jesus is being extremely intentional with his choice of words. It's not only incorrect to us in English, it's incorrect in the Greek. It's not the right way to use that verb. Now, even if Jesus would have used the right verb, Jesus is still saying something pretty significant. If he were to say, before Abraham was, I was. Now what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, I'm pre-existent. Right? It, what you see before you now is a 30-year-old man, about this time for Jesus and his ministry. No, no, no. Actually, I existed way before this form. I was around over 2,000 years ago. Well, what kind of category of being would that put Jesus in? Jesus would have to be some sort of spiritual being, like a, like a demon or an angel or God. Those are the only ones who could fit that criteria. Now, we know Jesus' opponents, they would probably pick one of those, a demon. But Jesus' choice of the next two words show where Jesus aligns himself in that assortment of spiritual beings that would meet that qualification. Jesus says, I'm God. That's what he's saying with this term here. When he says, I am. M. Jesus is not just talking about pre-existence. He's not just talking about existing before Abraham. Jesus is talking about divinity here. Now, this is not the first time John has made this clear to us. If we go back to John chapter 1, we see it in the very beginning of John's gospel. John talks about pre-existence, existing before all things, and he talks about divinity. And he takes these two kind of ideas and he applies them or connects them to the word who we know is John's title for Jesus. Look what he says in John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word existed before everything else. And the word was with God and the word was God. What's John doing there? John is saying... The word was pre-existent before all things and was divine. 
And we know that John refers to Jesus as the Word in John chapter 1. We see John do this again, this idea of pre-existence. He does it in verse 15 of John chapter 1. In verse 15 of John chapter 1, it says, John, this is John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer, bore witness about him and cried out, This was of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is John the Baptist talking about Jesus. He's about to encounter Jesus. Now, the language may seem very clear to us. Okay, John is talking about somebody who's coming after him, who ranks before him because he is before him. So some of, someone of higher ranking is coming, and this person is before him. He's talking about Jesus. Well, here's the problem. John the Baptist is actually older than Jesus. John the Baptist came, and then Jesus. Just speaking of their biological life, John the Baptist was before Jesus. So what on earth is John saying here about John the Baptist? What, what, how did John the Baptist understand Jesus? He understood him as one who existed before him. Jesus, again, is claiming with this term, I am, that he is preexistent before all things and that he is divine. We've got to go back to the Old Testament to really unpack what this title, I am, is, because this is a title that God uses for himself. So hearing this in a Jewish ear, it would ring back to the Old Testament where God has used this kind of title for himself, which is what Jesus is doing very intentionally in using the wrong grammar. He wants to use a name. He's saying something very specific. Jesus has not made an error here. Jesus is making a very intentional distinction about his identity. We see God use this term, I am, of himself all throughout the prophet Isaiah. Let me just show you one, but there are many of them. Let me just show you one in Isaiah 41, verse 4. And there are several times that God uses this in chapter 40 all the way through chapter 50 of the prophet Isaiah. But I picked this one because it speaks about God's pre-existence being before and, of course, him being God or Lord. Look at how God speaks of himself. Verse 4. He says, Who has performed and done this, calling the nations from the beginning? What is he saying there? Who has made all the nations? Who has made all of humanity? And then look at how he speaks of himself. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last. I was with the first because I made the first, and I will be with the last. I, I exist, I existed before, and I will continue to exist. And look at how he finishes the line. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. This is the same Greek word or phrase translated as I am in John chapter 8. In the Greek translation of the prophet Isaiah, it's the same exact phrase. But we got to go back even further to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, when God wants to give his name or his title, how he wants to be referred to by his people. As he is just bringing his people together and he wants them to worship him, he tells Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people who led them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the edge of the promised land, he says, here's how I want my people 
to talk about me. Here's the title and the name I want to give for myself. And look at how he speaks of himself and think about what Jesus is saying in John chapter 8. In Exodus 3, 14, look at how God gives his name to Moses. He says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am. Well, now we understand that Jesus doesn't just fail his grammar class, right? That that Jesus just isn't misspeaking, that Jesus didn't conjugate his verb correctly. Jesus is incredibly intentional, and the crowd finally gets it. They're not confused anymore. As Jesus talked the last couple times, he had made very significant uh, claims about people following him and never experiencing death, about Abraham seeing him and rejoicing. They've never really kind of understood those things, and they've only been confused. But now that Jesus says, I am, now everything is clear. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about. They know the prophet Isaiah. They know Exodus 3. They know the name and title of God in the Old Testament. They know exactly what Jesus is doing. He's not just claiming to be pre-existent. He is claiming to be divine. How do we know that? Look at their reaction. The reaction in verse 59 of John chapter 8. It says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went away to the temple. Wow. Wow. I mean, there's been some times in in my life that I haven't conjugated the verb correctly, and I never remember somebody hitting me with something because of it, trying to stone me and kill me because my grammar was incorrect. The most brutal thing that's ever happened to me is I got a, a bad grade, or my grandma took her red pen and just marked it up, and that hurt my self esteem. But nobody's ever tried to hurl a stone at me. It's because Jesus is doing so much more than that. Jesus is incredibly intentional and incredibly clear that he is saying, I am God. I am divine. And they can't have it. They must stone him and put him to death because he is a blasphemer. This is the penalty for blasphemy in the Old Testament. So they pick up stones to kill Jesus. He must die because he's committed the ultimate offense. He's claimed to be God. Jesus is either a demon or he's divine. We see this response from this crowd, and I myself disagree with it, but I understand it. Because Jesus really leaves us no alternative option. Jesus is either the Lord of the universe, or is he, he, he's a lunatic who needs to get locked up. Jesus is either divine or he is a demon. You're you're not given any other options. Either you adore him or you're appalled by him. I mean, think about the claims that Jesus is making here. Jesus is saying, I am the giver of eternal life and I have existed forever as God. What do you do with somebody who makes that kind of claim? You lock them up, right? You put them in a psych ward. You put them in a place where they can receive some attention because clearly, mentally, they're not all there. There's something going on. There's some severe psychosis there. Or the other option is what? Everything this person is saying is true. But you see how the options 
of teacher, of leader, of moral example, those all, those all fade away if we take Jesus at his word. Think about it. If these claims are false, then Jesus is not a good teacher because he teaches falsehood. If these claims are false, then Jesus is, is not a moral example. He's a narcissistic megalomaniac with a God complex. He's not a man to be admired. He's a man to be pitied. Jesus is either a demon or he is divine. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus to us is divine. We acknowledge that Jesus is divine. And that truth changes our reality. It changes our experience. Jesus is divine, which means he is the authority of our life. He is not the, or an advisor in our life. He is the authority in our life. Everything that Jesus teaches and instructs us to do all of the commands that Jesus gives us really change when we, we think of Jesus as God. You see, in, in much of our experience, the authorities over us are authorities that we really have placed there by choice. Our, our political leaders, we vote them in, right? Or, or a boss, right? We decide to get a job at that company, and our, our bosses have authority over us, and our political leaders have authority over us, but they only have authority because we give them permission to have authority over us. If we don't like what our political leaders are doing, we could just vote in a different way. If we don't like what our boss is doing, we could just get another job. But see, but that's not true about Jesus. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. His authority does not need our permission. You, you can't vote in a new Jesus. And you can't work for a new Jesus. He is divine. He is our authority. Jesus is divine, which also means that he is the one who can give us the greatest gift. He's the one that can do the greatest work on our behalf. Jesus being divine means he's the greatest authority. It also means he's the greatest benefactor. He can give us the greatest thing, the greatest gift. Political leaders could give us better representation. They can give us better legislation. Uh, bosses could give us better promotions. They could give us better pensions. They could give us better offices. But Jesus could give us the experience of never seeing death, of having a life given to us that will not be extinguished or interrupted by physical death. Jesus is divine, which means he is our greatest authority and he's our greatest benefactor. Which means we should not panic and we should not live in despair. Two things we maybe all have felt during this season, panic and despair. But if Jesus is divine, if Jesus is God, if he is the authority over our life, we do not need to panic. Why? Because we know what to do. He is our authority. 
We know the directions that we have, and he's the authority of mankind, which means we know the direction of history. We know where things are going. We know the one who's in control, and he has not dropped the pen as he's writing the history of mankind. He hasn't forgotten what the next page is. He hasn't forgotten what the next paragraph is. He hasn't forgotten what the next word is. He is intentionally aligning up everything to fit his purposes. He is God. Jesus is God. He is our authority. So we need not panic because we know what to do. It's all laid out right here. And we know where history is going. But also we need not live in despair. Because we have the greatest gift given to us, eternal life. We will not see nor taste death. We have a life that will not be interrupted by physical death. So there is no reason to fall into deep despair when everything around us seems to be unraveling. Because that truth is certain. And my prayer is that you would feel that this week. You would feel the weight, the gravity of the divinity of Jesus as the great authority in your life and Jesus as the great benefactor who has given you the greatest gift of your life. Now maybe you're here and you're watching this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I think based on this passage, I would say this. Your curiosity, your, your journey, your honest investigation of the claims of Jesus will lead you to a crossroads. The more and more you search out Jesus, the more you honestly examine the scriptures and see who he is, the more you will get to a watershed moment, a crossroads, if you will. And you will have to make a choice. Because if you take Jesus for his Claims he is either a demon or divine. He's either the Lord of the universe or he's a lunatic who needs to get locked up. There's really no third option. You cannot just be inspired by him. You have to be either one who adores him or one who is appalled by him. Even though I do not agree with the crowd in John chapter 8, I do understand, and I do think they're being honest. They believe Jesus is a demon, and they respond accordingly. What I would challenge you to do is this, to set aside some time this week to reread the Gospel of John chapter 8. To reread chapter 8. To go through it again and ask yourself, who is this Jesus? What do I do with these claims? What do I do with this Jesus? Is he a demon or is he divine? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the love that you shower upon us. We thank you for the clarity of Jesus' teaching. Father, we thank you that there is no mystery. Jesus is very upfront. Jesus is very honest, very real, very open. He's not hiding. His claims are not foggy. 
They're clear. He has said that he is the one who can rescue us from death, that he is the son of God, the one who can liberate us from the power of sin. He is the one who can give us eternal life, and he has existed before all things because he is God. Those are heavy, heavy things. And as followers of Jesus Christ, the weight of those things is what gets us through the storm of this season. We are anchored by the divinity of Jesus. We are anchored in the fact that Jesus is God. He is our authority and the wonderful giver of the gift of eternal life. We need not panic or be in despair. Father, I pray for those. I pray for those whose curiosity has brought them to this moment to watch this service and maybe several of our other services. I pray, Father, this be a moment of great clarity for them, that they would see how Jesus is calling them to follow him, to love him, to turn from their sin, to trust in him, to see his death and resurrection as the only means of their forgiveness, that he can die and rise because he's God. He can die for our sin and overcome the consequence of that sin because he's God. I pray, Father, today that they would see that. I pray this week as they read John chapter 8 again, that they would make that decision to follow you for the rest of their life. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for joining us and look forward to seeing you again next Sunday.